this morning and turn with me to Esther chapter 9. We'll be looking at the last half of Esther chapter 9 in the entire chapter 10 today. Chapter 10 is a real long one. All of three verses, right? And today this is the closing study here uh, in our study of Esther. And it may seem a little bit anticlimactic to some, because the exciting part of the story is really over. Last week we uh, unfolded the mighty victory that came to king, the king of Persia when Mordecai, now installed as the prime minister of the kingdom, accomplished the deliverance of the Jews and thus saved the kingdom from destruction. But the last section of the book serves as a very... Uh, as a, a very important purpose for us as well. It's designed to teach us the need to remember. Even today, the Jews celebrate this story of Esther in the Feast of Purim. The Feast of Purim is not a Christian celebration, although we would rejoice with the Jews because every spiritual blessing that we have has come through the Jews. The Jews were used of God to give us the knowledge of the true and living God, to give us the scriptures. Uh, They gave us uh, our Savior. The first Christians were Jewish believers, and so were the first missionaries. Jesus was a Jew who died on Passover, a Jewish feast, and rose again from the dead. Another Jewish holy day, the Feast of Firstfruits, and the Holy Spirit came from heaven upon a group of Jewish believers on a Jewish holiday called Pentecost. John 4.22 says, For salvation is of the Jews. So we're thankful for them. Our desire is that they would be saved and accept Jesus Christ as the true Messiah. But now we come here to this portion of Scripture and we see the name Purim. It's a plural of the Babylonian word pour, which means lot. It originates from Haman's casting of lots to determine the day when the Jews would be destroyed. And even though God did not command this celebration, the Jews determined it would be celebrated from generation to generation. Now, We certainly have holidays that did not originate in the Bible, but they came as a result of events that took place in the history of our nation. This past week we had uh, Veterans Day. And I want to thank all of you men and women who are here today who have served in our country's armed forces because without you, uh, we would not have the measure of freedom that we have today. And I thank God for you. And uh, I trust that we will always honor those who have served. Now, I believe there is a godly patriotism that goes beyond nationalism and a thankfulness for the country that we live in. I'm thankful for our country. It's that which gives glory to God for what he has done. And to see the hand of God in history and praise God for his goodness and mercy and to ask God to forgive 
us our sins, and perhaps that's the best way for a Christian patriot to celebrate a national holiday. And we think, you know, uh, there's a lack of patriotism today. And it's coming from some of our leaders. But, you know, we can celebrate days like the 4th of July, or we can celebrate uh, D-Day, or some of these days that marked events in our country's history. We can have a Veterans Day. But there's more than just a celebration upon that day. There's to be a dedication that follows the celebration. Someone has said patriotism is not a short, frenzied outburst of emotion, but the tranquil and steady dedication of a lifetime. And so here we have the Jews set aside two days for a holiday. Uh, There's feasting, there's gladness, there's merrymaking. It's called Purim. And on the first evening, they read through the story of Esther. And this is the day when all the Jewish children will come into their own and they bring noisemakers and little drums and horns to the service. And whenever the name of Haman is mentioned, they blow the horns and they pound the drums and they boo and they hiss through the reading of the book wherever Haman is mentioned. It reminds me of the old melodramas. Remember, a melodrama is where you have a villain and you have a hero. I had... uh, when I was in high school, I was a part of a, a play. They recruited for, it's unbelievable. You know, the, in our high school, is big enough that the athletes and the football players, they were kind of a separate group. And the, the people, the thespians, they were another group, the ones that did the plays. Well, someone had the bright idea of bringing all that together. And so some of us football players were all uh, on in the school play that year. Since I knew how to play the piano. I was selected to be one of the piano players, had two pianos down there, and and uh, we played the music during the play, the melodrama, and whenever the villain would come in, we'd uh, you know, have the, the noise that uh, the playing of the piano, dun, 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 dun you know, something like that. And the hero would come in and it would would be happy music and everybody would be cheering and and we got the audience all involved and it was great. Well, that's kind of what this celebration of Purim was like. It was like what we we think of a melodrama with a hero and a villain and Haman, of course, is the villain. And Mordecai is the hero. Sounds like an interesting service to attend, doesn't it? Well, the second day then is set aside for the feasting and the merrymaking and for exchanging of gifts and kind of like we celebrate Christmas. But all this is in remembrance of the deliverance accomplished by Esther and Mordecai in the days of the Persian Empire some 500 years before Christ. And it is celebrated to this day because God wants the Jewish people never to forget this deliverance And it is forever an important day in their history. Now, this is also true in the spiritual application, I believe, of the story. I think there are some lessons in this book, and even in these closing chapters, there's uh, some lessons that to be learned in marking a day of beginning of deliverance. 
When was the day of deliverance in your Christian experience? Can you remember the day, the time, the place when you trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? It should never be forgotten. And I think there are four things in the latter part of this passage that God wants us to remember. The first one is the fruits of victory. This was the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Shushan gathered on the 13th and the 14th and rested on the 15th, making the day of feasting and gladness. And therefore the Jews of the village who live in the open towns held the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day of gladness and feasting and holiday making and a day in which they would send choice portions to one another. Look at chapter 9, beginning in verse 17. On the 13th day of the month of Adar and on the 14th day of the same rested they and made it a day of feasting and gladness. But... The Jews that were at Shushan assembled together on the 13th day thereof, and on the 14th thereof, and on the 15th day of the same, they rested and made a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore the Jews of the villages that dwelt in the village, the unwalled town, made 14th day of the month Adar, a day of gladness and feasting, and a good day, and of sending portions one to another. And Mordecai wrote these things, and sent letters unto all the Jews that were in all the provinces of the king of Ahasuerus, both nigh and far, to establish this among them, that they should keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and the 15th day of the same yearly. As the days wherein the Jews rested from their enemies, and the month which was turned unto them from sorrow to joy, and from mourning unto the good day, that they should make them days of feasting and joy, and of sending portions one to another, and gifts to the poor. Now, as you go back, and as even as I've kind of described this, Already, this you look here and you see how many times the emphasis of celebration was here in this uh, on this day. It was a day of feasting and gladness. You see it mentioned a number of times, seven, verse 17, verse 18, 19, twice again in verse 22. It was also to be a day of rest, a day of a holiday, uh, kind of like a holiday uh, that you have from your work uh, uh, and uh, if you work at a bank or the post office, you got one of those holidays this last week. And, of course, some of you are always on holiday at this point in your life. But it was a day in which they obtained relief from their enemies. It was a day that they would show generosity, deep concern for others. They would send gifts to the poor. And this all indicates the result of the victory that was accomplished. Now, I think... In comparison to the Christian life, it would be evident that this is the enjoyment of the fruit of the Spirit. Think about this for a moment. It seems to be a continual parallel between the conflict of this book and the problem or problems in the Christian life to gain victory over the evidences and manifestations of the flesh. Remember, in, in Galatians chapter 5, you have that list of in verse 19 and 20 of the manifest, manifestations of the flesh and the sin. And yet, in verse 22, then you have the fruit of the Spirit. And that which all along comes to the freedom to enjoy what the New Testament calls the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, the virtues of a truly Christian experience. 
And that freedom is a result of victory gained along the lines that are set forth even of this book. And that's what God wants us to remember. You can't have the fruit without the process. And as we learn the process, we come to an actual experience of these wonderful truths. And so as we come to the end of this book, we must ask ourselves, you know, how much did the kingdom of Persia experience these blessings while Haman was the prime minister? Were they experiencing these blessings? Boy, he's a picture here of the rule of the flesh, the self-life, the ego, the uncrucified self. Even in a believer, he's a picture of that. And how much did they experience the joy and feasting and gladness in the holiday while Haman was in power? Not much. Actually, none whatsoever. When Haman ruled, the result of the kingdom was confusion and mourning and weeping and dejection and despair. And how aptly this describes the experience of the Christian who is struggling to do his best for God, earnestly, sincerely trying to do so, but yet never yet learned what God wants to teach him in the terms of rest and dependence upon the indwelling life of the Lord Jesus to work through him. And until we learn this, Haman's going to be in control. And our experience will be one of confusion and bewilderment and boredom and up and down experience. There's going to be some dejection and some despair and sometimes some awful depression of spirit. Because Haman is in control. The self-life, the selfishness, the pride, the ego is in control. And we need to take care at this point for we are used to looking at our circumstances as a source of happy feelings. If everything's going great, we're happy. We, you know, we can experience rest and gladness and concern for others. We instinctively feel that somehow we will have happy circumstances all of our life. And we must be careful to understand exactly what here is offered. The power supply of peace and victory and joy and a continual outflowing river of love does not mean there will be a change in the Christian circumstances for things to do. For things do not come from circumstances, I should say. I think that's what we need to learn. The ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives as believers. Now, this is not a separate event called the baptism or the filling of the Spirit. It is not evidenced by speaking in tongues or the sign gifts like healing. That's not what we're talking about here, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Some groups might. But I don't believe that's what the Bible teaches us. Victory does not mean freedom from weariness or sickness or sorrow or heartache or pressure or defeat or danger or the loss of a loved one or the hitting of a deer on the road or having a bad back. Rather, in the midst of all these things, We shall at the same time experience an inner quietness of joy and of gladness and of peace and at rest. It's experience going right on at the same time that outward experiences 
seem to be troubling and making it difficult, and yet the ministry of the indwelling Spirit of God is in our lives as believers. Now, that needs to be made clear here, because I think many Christians are confused and expect to be set free from all unhappiness. There shouldn't be any problems in a Christian's life, right? The deer go their way, and we go ours, right? For those that don't know, that most of you do, I had an unpleasant encounter with a seven-point buck this week. Don't you feel sorry for me? I finally got my deer. I finally feel like I belong up here. It's taken four years, but I finally feel like I belong. No, we're not going to be free from all those unpleasant circumstances in life as a believer. The the Lord warned us, in the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. There is a place of relief and release despite of the circumstances. Deliverance comes not by a change of our conditions, but by another principle, the continual imparting to us by the Holy Spirit, the indwelling life of the risen Lord, whose adequate resources maintain our spirits in strength and rest and peace, despite any circumstances that we might go through. I'm so thankful for the, the promise and the, the gift of the Spirit of God along with the gift of salvation. And so we find here the fruits of victory. Secondly, we see the elements of victory. In verse 23, it says, And the Jews undertook to do as they had begun, and as Mordecai had written unto them, because Haman the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had devised against the Jews to destroy them and cast Uh, had cast poor, that is, the lot, to consume them and to destroy them. But when Esther came before the king, he commanded by letters that his wicked uh, wicked device, which he devised against the Jews, should return upon his own head, and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. It's important to give attention to how this victory was won. And I believe every Christian who knows Jesus Christ as the indwelling life within, I think sometimes we occasionally will stumble onto victory. The Spirit of God puts us in circumstances where we are overwhelmed in an amount of desperation. We cry unto God for help. Inevitably, when we do that, we experience deliverance and victory and Yet so often, this emergency help, which is available only when we get our backs up against the wall, right? <laughs> only when there's problems in our world. Oh, God, help us. We, we need help here. No. That's the normal way of life for the believer. Every day. 
Whether the conditions are good or bad or circumstances are, are troublesome or difficult, we are meant always to be in this condition, always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. 2 Corinthians 4.10 And when we learn to walk in consistent knowledge that this is our true condition, then we become consistent in our deliverance, in our experience of victory. We can live on the victory side day by day, not just once in a while when we're getting into real trouble, but every day. Notice with me the steps that we have here, even in this, and you probably don't realize it, uh, how this gives uh, is given to us here, but we see them outlined in the summary of this book. Here's a kind of a conclusion of this book, and it's a summary here. But notice, it's the first of all, is the recognition of the problem. We see this in the exposure of Haman. Now, it gives us here in verse 24 his full name, Haman the Agagite. Remember, Agag was the king of the Amalekites, against whom God has pronounced eternal enmity. For Agag was opposed to all that God wanted to do. And here is Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadathan, the enemy of all the Jews, and his deceit and his treachery and his subtlety is now fully exposed. And as we have seen, Haman is a picture of that enemy within, the ego of the self-life, the desire for preeminence and prominence. So the first step to deliverance is, hey, we got to recognize the problem. Yes, I realize this is far more difficult than it sounds. It's easy for me to say that, isn't it? But, you know, we justify things that are destroying us, and we make excuses for them, We call them sweet-sounding names, and it's like putting honey and syrup labels in bottles of poison. And that makes them all the more deadly, doesn't it? No wonder it's difficult to recognize the voice of the devil in our experience. There was a time when Jesus said to his disciples, What do men say that I am, or whom do men say that I am? Peter, moved by the Holy Spirit, said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, you're right. But you know what? You didn't learn that by by yourself. The Father spoke that to you. He said this, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. It was the Father who revealed that to you and taught you that. And then he began to tell them that he must first go up to Jerusalem and he would be taken by the chief priests and the scribes and he would be beaten and put on upon a cross. And on the third day he would rise again. And Peter did not like that. Peter said to him, and really, in effect, by your own admission, I've just spoken to you by the voice of the Father, and now I have some other advice to give you. Don't talk like this, Jesus. Spare yourself. This must never happen to you. You're too valuable to throw yourself away like this, to waste your life in this manner. This can never happen to you, Jesus. Uh, Peter's boldness and presumptuousness is coming out, isn't it? Jesus said to Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. And this is a way to recognize Haman, even though he comes disguised as unselfishly concerned for our best interests, we must learn by the word of God to recognize the voice of the flesh. And that's the first step to victory. 
We need to recognize the problem. The second step is to acknowledge the resources. Resources acknowledged in verse 25. But when Esther came before the king, he commanded by letters that this wicked device, which he devised against the Jews, should return upon his own head, and that he should be, uh, he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Now, there had been a new decree, remember? That meant the Jews were going to be set free from the law of the old decree. And this is a great picture for us of the law of the new life in Jesus Christ. We have the Spirit of God dwelling within us. He sets us free from the law of sin and death in our experience. And here, uh, therefore, becomes our resource. It is no longer up to us to try to do our best. I'm just going to try to work harder. I'm just going to try to do a little bit more. I'm going to try to do this. No, it's not up to us because we now have the indwelling Spirit of God It means the difference between to try to show the world how much we can do for Christ and letting them show, letting Him show the world how, what He can do through us. You see the difference there? It isn't a struggle now trying to be good, but depending upon the one who is good, who dwells within us. We step forward to do what we need to be done, and his life becomes manifest in terms, terms of our activity. And the knowledge of this is the second step to victory. Notice the third step, reckoning the old life dead. We see this in the hanging of Haman and his sons on the gallows. The amazing thing is that until we are willing to put the old life with its manifestations in the place of death, where God put it in Jesus Christ, we can never lay hold of that indwelling life. When we try to make both Haman and Christ live at the same time, keeping a portion of the ego as a pet area from which we exclude God, we find we cannot lay hold of his life in us. And victory comes when we are content to have our own egos Overlooked and humility or humiliated if we, if need be, that the life of Jesus may be manifest and expressed through us. We can't have both. That is his self-giving and it may replace our self-seeking. We can't have Haman and Mordecai both. One of them had to go. And so we reckon the old life dead. When we are content to have it that way, not only in terms of words, but in terms of experience, then there's an immediate experience of a risen life flowing through us, working out, and that is victory. Now there's a third thing that God wants us to remember here, and that's the duration of victory. We see it in verses 26 through 32. Wherefore they called these days Purim, after the day of Pur. Therefore, for the words of this letter and of that which they had seen concerning this matter and which had come unto them, the Jews ordained and took upon them and upon their seed and upon all such as joined themselves unto him them, so as it would should not fail that they would keep these two days according to their writing, according to their appointed time every year, and that these days should be remembered 
and kept throughout every generation, every family, every province, every city, and that these days of Purim should not fail from among the Jews, nor the memorial of them perish from their seed. And then Esther the queen, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai the Jew, wrote with all authority to confirm this second letter of Purim, And he sent letters unto all the Jews to the hundred and twenty and seven provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus with words of peace and truth to confirm these days of Purim in their times appointed according to as Mordecai the Jew and Esther the queen had enjoined them and they had decreed for themselves and for their seed in the matters of the fasting and their cry and the decree of Esther confirmed these matters of Purim and it was written in the book. All of that to say over and over again, that this just must go on continually. To be set free from the domain of self by the recognition of what God has done in Jesus Christ on the cross must continue to be the process for our entire length of life. The initial deliverance was intended to precipitate a process that goes on and on. When you got saved, that wasn't the end. That was just the beginning. And it was to go on from there, day by day, moment by moment. Interesting enough, there is a tradition among the Jews that the Feast of Purim is the only feast that would be observed after the Messiah comes. The Feast of the Tabernacles and the Passover and all others will cease, they say, when the Messiah comes. When the Feast of Purim, it'll go on even in the days of the kingdom. And this reflects the truth that to walk in the Spirit is to be normal for both time and eternity for us. And we must teach our descendants this as well, our children, that they may see what it means to walk in victory over resentment and jealousy and impatience and envy and lust and self-love and self-seeking and pride and self-pity and all other experiences of the self-life. And when they see that, when our children, when our descendants, our grandchildren, when they see us walking in this victory, there'll be a recognition of the reality of the deliverance in our homes that will make our children sit up and take notice that, you know, life is indeed worth living. Is this the reason maybe why many of our children grow up in Christian homes and yet they go out bewildered? and bored, and frustrated, and unhappy, not enjoying what they have, because we, who are parents, have not learned to walk in the Spirit. It's a walk. What does it mean to walk? It's a continual process, taking the same steps over and over and over again, putting one foot in front of the other, walking. Every time conflict comes, we fall apart. Or do we keep going? When conflict comes, is it a manifestation of continual victory or defeat? You know, that's what Enoch learned. We are told that Enoch lived 65 years. I can identify. I'm almost 65. Not quite. Getting there very, very soon. Enoch lived 65 years before he learned to walk with God. I wonder, is it taking some of us that long before we learn how to walk with God? 
But after he learned to walk, he walked 300 years. I'm not saying we're going to walk 300 years, but uh, he walked 300 years with God. And one day he walked along until like a little girl said, God just said to him, come on, Edith, come, uh, come home with me. It's too far for you to go back to your home. And so he was not because God took him, Genesis 5.24 says. And he walked on into glory. And that's the picture of what God would have for each one of us as believers. He wants us to just keep walking, walking, walking until we come to that day when we just go to be with Christ. The duration of victory. And we come... Finally, to the secret of victory. We come to this big, long chapter, chapter 10. And King Ahasuerus laid a tribute upon the land and upon the isles of the sea and all the acts of his power and of his might and declaration of the greatness of Mordecai, whereunto the king advanced him. Are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of the Median and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was next unto the king Ahasuerus, and great among the Jews, and accepted the multitude of his brethren, seeking the wealth of his people, and speaking peace to all his seed. Now this book began with King Ahasuerus as a prominent figure, and it told the story of the display of his power and his might. But as we read, we also learn of a hidden cancer that's kind of at work in his kingdom, eating away, beginning certainly to destroy all of his power and the manifestation of might. And had the story not taken course that we have recorded here, that would have been the inevitable end. But the book ends with a king prominent again in the story of display of his power and might. But we now realize there is a power behind the throne which is now publicly recognized. That power, Mordecai, is always subject to the will of the king, for he never forces the king to do his will. And I want you to see this in your life as well. Your will is supreme in the final decisions of what takes place in your kingdom. But there must be a power behind the throne. And through the will of the king... The Holy Spirit works to bring power and peace to your kingdom, to your life. What a picture this is of a spirit-filled life. This is the open secret of every successful Christian. It's not a secret in the sense of, we're not going to tell anybody about this, but it's it's the key, the secret is the key to a successful Christian life. His will is still dominant. He can do wrong, that is the Christian life, can do wrong if he chooses, but he has to learn a lesson. He has to learn that it's not only the yielding of that will and continuing sense of dependence upon the one who dwells within, that there comes any manifestation of power or peace in that kingdom. And when we learn to walk in that dependence, we become a man or a woman under authority, under power, who brings about peace and joy that each one of us long for. Now, we learn to, need to learn to reckon this. This is what makes a Christian able, figuratively, to fall in a cesspool and come out smelling like a rose. You know, every circumstance can work for good. 
That's what it says in Romans 8.28, doesn't it? All things work together for good. Even the trials, the tribulations, the difficulties in your life can work out for good. And that's why to a Christian, his disappointments make him better, not bitter. His heartaches become sources of joy. And the hard circumstances of life produce in him the wisest or the choices of virtues and the very things that he longs for are manifested in his character. The weaker he feels, the more impact his life has on others. He becomes sweeter and mellower and filled with the inner beauty driven to this by the very unpleasantness he goes through. That's the secret. This is the spirit-filled life. A human interest, uh, instrument counting on the indwelling spirit to meet every demand with holy inad- or holy adequate resources. Therefore, there's no tension because tension becomes or comes from living out of inadequacy. There's nothing more complicated about it than that. It's really just that simple, you know, and yet it's very profound, isn't it? The problem all along is how to end this old life without killing the man. You know how that's done? It's done at the cross. We can say with Paul, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, it's obvious that God used his people to accomplish his purpose here in the pagan kingdom. God, in his providence, used Esther to, Esther to influence the king in behalf of her people. Mordecai, when even out of the will of God, was used to make something good out of the evil plans of a wicked Haman. And as chapter 10 indicates here, Mordecai used his office to serve the king. He used it to help the Jews, and that is an important message here, even in this little short chapter at the conclusion of this book. In verse 3, we noted here that it, the concluding words were, he's Mordecai seeking the wealth of his people and speaking peace to all of his seed, suggests to us that he encouraged the Jews and kept them at peace with one another. And the exciting drama of Esther's day is over, but the blessings go on. God preserved a Jewish nation so that today we could have a Bible. We could have a Savior. Now it's our job to tell the whole world about this Savior and to seek to win as many people as we can to Christ. We are the king's couriers. We are his messengers to spread the news of the new decree. The old decree, the wages of sin is death, is still in effect, yet there's a new decree in effect, and that is the gift of God is eternal life. It's our responsibility to live faithfully for God in a wicked and sinful world. Now, if you recall, when we began our study, it was concerning the amazing providences of God. And although God's people in the days of Queen Esther had rejected him and he had withdrawn his name from them and they were not, yet they were not out of reach of his providence, God preserved his people. His providence is still uh, gracious to them. And even though you and I can know the providence of God is at work in our lives, hey, listen, we should not be depending upon that. Remember Psalm 32, which we read earlier? 
We should not be like the horse that must be led forcibly by the bridle. Being led by his providence, you know, is really a method that God uses for those who rebel and refuse to be led. If you're his child this morning, he wants to lead you directly. He says, I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eye. And this requires a blessed nearness to God if we are to have the guidance of his eye. God wants to direct us to touch our lives in a very intimate way. But how many Christians are sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit in this day in which we live? God will not bring much pressure to bear, but when he makes just a little suggestion at you at the crossroads of life, are you so far away from him to know that he is indicating a certain pathway? You and I as believers should not only be guided by the providence of God, but we ought to be guided directly by the Spirit of God. And yet, even if we slip out of God's direct dealings through the breaking of fellowship because of sin, we have not slipped from out, out from under his providential dealings. God ever stands in the shadows waiting for us to in, restore our fellowship with him through the confessing and the forsaking of sin, and he continually keeps watch over his own. If there's someone here this morning who's never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, then you do not have the indwelling Spirit of God to lead you. To have the indwelling Spirit of God to lead you through this life, you have to receive the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. And I encourage you to do that today. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, 